This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. Well, I'm not an expert. Yep. You just gave everybody permission to discount whatever you're about to say. Bingo. And any phrase that is in that box, because there's a ton of them. And when I hear them, if I'm, say, it's helping somebody prepare for an interview, I'm like, stop. Action words. You did this. I get that you did it with the team. We all get that part. And we all did it with teams, by the way. Exactly. And now let's sharpen your message. And, you know, I will still stop people, say, teachable moment here. When you just said this, you denigrated what you were about to tell me, I believe. And here's the phrase you used. Well, I'm I'm just an art person. No, art and design is actually huge in robotics, right? You said, no, 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 no. That's the skill you bring to the table. That's the value you bring to the table. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. What do you talk about at the dinner table if both of your parents are spies? You'll discover one family's answer to that question from my guest today, Renee Wynn. To the outside world, her parents were simply systems analysts. In fact, they were analysts and operatives for the American intelligence services. And that's just one intriguing tidbit from Renee's fascinating life story. She spent 25 years working in information services at the Environmental Protection Agency before becoming Chief Information Officer, or CIO, at NASA. While many people might consider CIO a humdrum job, the challenge and fun of delivering cloud services in space is anything but. Renee's career path reminds us that it's not what you major in at college that matters, but whether you built good reasoning skills and became an active learner. That's how an econ major rises to become the CIO of a multi-billion dollar enterprise with a network that reaches, quite literally, beyond the solar system. So Renee Wynn, uh, delighted to get you on the podcast. Boy, I can't wait to learn all sorts of things from you on this podcast about the world cyber and the world NASA. So thank you for agreeing to join me. Kathy, it is an honor to join you on this stage and, and talk about probably a lot of different things, including NASA and cybersecurity, perhaps even you know leadership and being women and the journeys of our life and, and how it can both be inspiring or lessons learned. <laughs> <laughs> inspiring and informative. <laughs> there you go. The much better word. Well, let yeah. me show you the scar from that conversation. Oh, yes. exactly. Exactly. Well, before we get to comparing our various bits of hard-won scar tissue, I've never had the chance to chat with you about the longer Renee Wynn story. So let's spool back through time a little bit and uh, tell me a bit about the very young Renee Wynn, where she was growing up, what life was like, what her family was like, age three, four, five, where, wherever you first remember something. Yeah, thank you for that. It's it's uh, first I always open with I am a native Washingtonian. I was born in the city of Washington. Oh my God, that makes you a, a very rare species. It does, it does. And so as I grew up, there were a number of influences. One was 
international news and I would call it politics, but geopolitics too, have always been right there in front. And I had I had the benefit of actually three parents, right? And that because my parents divorced when I was very young. So back when you didn't get divorced. Yeah. But my uh, mom was covert operations for a national security agency. So she was a spy. Whoa. So you guys, you guys lived in Maryland or in the district or what, what part of town? As my son says, I'm a DMV girl. So born in the <laughs> district, uh, M for Maryland, D for district. Maryland was uh, up until I got engaged. So I was there both in Prince George's County as well as Montgomery County. PG is the one sort of northeast of Washington and Montgomery Northwest. Northwest and probably a little bit southwest, you know, because okay. they're they yeah. they abut each other. So okay. there's lots of roads between them and the Beltway. Just outside the district in suburbia is where you exactly. Up. Actually, it touched parts of Prince George's County and parts of Montgomery County touch Washington D.C., which okay. you know was was influential growing up here, especially yeah. once one got a driver's license. And your mom's a spy and was your dad in some part of the government business? I mean, it, it is a company town. Yes. Yes. Interestingly enough, uh, my dad was hired by NASA at age 25 as wow. an engineer. And a lot of folks don't know that. He was there when I was the chief information officer. He was still there? He was there, but as a, a new attend. Okay. And when I joined, his first comment was, I might reduce my time with NASA because you're already bossed me around enough. <laughs> <laughs> and was he computer geeky or a spacecraft engineer? No, you know, Kathy, interestingly enough, as a kid, I'm going to just finish the third parent. My third parent was my stepfather, who was also covert operations. He was Army covert operations, SIGINT, as Signal Intelligence Corps. And then he moved to NSA, where that's where my mom met them. So I had this public service background at the house, a lot of it, um, spook background. So my parents never talked about work. I, I was going to ask, what was your dinner table conversation? I mean, <laughs> so it was politics and it was schedules like everyone, in, yeah. you know, it was also schedules because there were two where my, I have a sister food, especially as we became teenagers and lots of geopolitic issues as well as international. Um, we had a lot of international influence in our house, probably had a lot of spies visit our house that I didn't even know. <laughs> So what'd you tell your friends about what your parents did? I mean, I didn't, you... I didn't have a thing to tell my friends. They were systems analysts. All right, then. And did they ever, were they kind of, I mean, did you ever know where they were working? No. And in fact, two great stories uh, on that one. One, my stepfather had gone away for six weeks and he said, I'm going to South America. So he was gone for six weeks and he comes back and he's got a suitcase full of stuff for us. The first thing that comes out, not out of the suitcase, but to give to us were carved rhinoceros, giraffe. I mean, I distinctly remember this, a, a giraffe and a lion, maybe a tiger. And so then not exactly tiger. South America. Exactly. And Malachite. <laughs> and I was at least savvy enough to go, why are we have these carved wooden animals from South America. How is that, you know, in, in only a teenage voice, how is that the thing you get from South America? That's not South America, that's Africa. You know, I'm no idiot. My mother and my stepfather kind of said, well, we couldn't tell you, but David was actually in Africa, in Mubasa. And then he proceeded to tell us stories about you know, driving around armed vehicle with people with big guns and snakes. He says, yeah, whenever you walk somewhere, you had to stomp, not everywhere, but certain places. I was like, okay, well, those are very different. Yeah. And he says, we, well, we couldn't, we couldn't put the family at risk by you having knowledge of where we were. My, my. Yep. So this also meant, well, not formally trained, like a lot of diplomats, families, where I was learning to drive and I grabbed the steering wheel a particular way as 16, 17 year olds do. And my mother just snaps to me, like, don't do that. If your wrist gets broken, you will not be able to drive. And in fact, you're putting your wrist at risk of getting broken. And I'm like, 
okay, mom, did we swallow the, we're not connected to this world day pill, right? (laughs) What did I know? And she says, okay, here's the thing. You could be kidnapped. And so let's learn about how you can make sure that you don't get kidnapped and what you need to do if you should get kidnapped. Wow. Still 16, 17 year old, you're just looking down the road going, have I now just gone into the twilight zone? (laughs) Exactly. Why am I worried about being kidnapped in suburban America in Washington, D, you know, just outside of yeah. Washington, D.C.? So she proceeds to teach me a few things. I'm like, OK, great. And so I hid that knowledge. Like, I am not telling anyone I know this stuff. Well, I, I mean, you're 16. The first time you kind of realized that your folks being in that business could ricochet off onto you. Yes, actually, that was probably the the sort of huh. And it got played out. One other time, and that is, is when I was getting ready, I really wanted to go to college overseas as part of my whole college experience, right? Not as an extra thing, but as part of the scholastic, the academic, as well as the cultural and experiential things. And this is back in the eighties. And so when I came home with the list, there was this, you know, no, 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 no. And, and that's when I was told, at least at that point, you're not going to Greece. You are too close to being kidnapped. It's you're just in harm's way. And I'm, I, I'm like, at this point, I'm going, what are you guys talking about? You're great. <laughs> yeah. You know, I can be oblivious to your jobs and just get over it. And I think that plays out sometimes when people tell me they have unusual jobs. I just stop asking questions yeah. because I, at home I was taught you just, you, you don't go here questions. and you don't go down right. that rabbit hole. And I went, okay. And they said, well, here's the deal. We're in positions where you and your sister could be targets. So what we try to do is make sure you don't go places that changes your risk profile. The United States is fine. The other thing we have to think about is whether if something should happen to you, can we help you in any way? And help, my interpretation was not just what a parent typically would do to help, right? But that there were resources associated with it that were not the typical resources. Yeah. We're not, it's not, we're sending you traveler's checks. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. right, exactly. We'll just send rent, you know, cryptocurrency. In this yeah. No, we're not an option. No. I, I, more like SWAT team. <laughs> exactly. 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 Yeah. You got it. We're going to do an extraction operation here. It, exactly. And, and that's if, if I was worth saving, right? I mean, let's just be real <laughs> about geopolitical issues. There are some they'll try to do something for, there's some that they will absolutely do something for. And there are people that, yeah, they'll just nod and say, thank you. Take a number. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it's all right. It's all right. You know, it actually helped being the chief information officer. What did you guys do for vacations? Uh, beach. We, we just got lazy. <laughs> My parents were like, boom, out cold on the beach and that. So ultimately, so your listeners know, I did go to the University of Freiburg in the Black Forest. Um, oh, nice. So it was great because I was in a secure situation as far as they were concerned. Yeah. I was in the area called the Dry Ecke, Three Corners, because um, you know, I was that far. Yep. And this is with West Germany. The Three Corners. Germany. Yep. yep. Because then you're France and Switzerland. So all the borders are good in all of that. And um, it was a great experience. And so vacations were always spent at the beach and I spent all my vacations doing adventure things because I love the beach and I can do it for a week, but after a while I'm like, all right, Stir let's, crazy. Go, let's yeah, make yeah. wild things happen. So I spent my third year of university in Norway. And may I just say that no planning anything like what you just described occurred in my household. <laughs> <laughs> but why, why not, Kathy? I thought, I thought that, that you pulled out a map and you laid the terrain, it's like, okay, we're going here. Let's all figure out our escape routes. Not quite as, yeah, that happened. <laughs> no. And, you know, there's a tremendous commando history in a World War II commando history in Norway. So I suppose I could have fallen into your version of the Twilight Zone and found myself in such an escapade. But but that's just wild. It is wild. And then there was one other point when Actually, I then learned a lot more about my mother. And so my mom died very young. She was 48. My sister was much younger. She is much younger. No, she's not older than I am. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Well, that's a a NASA capability. Maybe we should talk to people about that. 
So it was at her funeral that my uh, stepfather was able to get cleared uh, information to share with us about her. And I think the big claim to fame was my mom was fluent in many languages and I knew some of them. I didn't know all of them. And one of them was Bulgarian. And of course, people are like, well, how do you not know your mom's fluent in Bulgarian? I'm like, when did you go to a Bulgarian restaurant? Order off the Bulgarian menu. <laughs> exactly. I said, <laughs> you know, in Washington, you'd see French, you'd see German, you'd see Spanish, right? And mom would just write into those languages, order and all that. You're like, okay, that makes sense. We're in Washington. Everyone speaks those languages. I don't, but they do. And he shared a story about uh, covert operations where she successfully did an extraction through the catacombs of Bulgaria of some important assets for the United States government. And, you know, that's when you kind of went, oh, that's what all those things meant. Yeah. And especially as a teenager, you know, you're more go overseas and work. She was on the active side of things or she was yeah. sort of in the back home and the analyst side of things. Yeah, she was uh, both an analyst. Uh, she was a logistics planner and ultimately ended up in and not ended up, but chose to be because you, know, you choose these things. You yeah. chose to be in an operation. She also had a hand in the failed Iran saving the hostages. Actually, a woman I went to high school with her father was there and he was a, a, a hostage. So that morning when it failed, you know, we're all, we, we pay attention to the news, right? Especially sure, that, yeah. you know, woke up and my, uh, oddly, my parents were actually still asleep. My mom and stepfather, which is unusual because they're, you know, usually out to work because you're dealing with time zones. They were out to work, but they were home is because they had spent pretty much the whole night working a lot of different things. And, and the helicopters were the point of failure. There's many points of failures on that. But my mother had worked on the planning of that one. And all I got was an expletive and out the <laughs> showered and out the door. And we didn't see her for a couple of days after that. It wow. happened. She shared some more information in that expletive and, and out the door. So there were certainly signs, but, you know, let's talk about being a teenager. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're self-centered. Yeah. And the world is not that big. No. And the final thing that, that sort of shapes your mindset and this gets back to us being both at NASA when I got the, the, the honor of being invited uh, by station by William Phil Gerstenmeier and the head of space the station. station. Yeah, space station. Yes, thank you. International Space Station. And they said, hey, why don't you come to a launch? Having just been speaking about spooks, you might have meant a different station. <laughs> exactly exactly yeah, that's my, true. my brain was still sort of in james bond mode <laughs> yeah well stay there stay there Kathy. so i say sure let's let's go because actually the cio organization supports these launches um quite a bit in a lot of different ways and these so, are all the launches to assemble the station is at that point in time it, it was actually no uh it was well assembled this was just okay. in 2017 2018 oh, right, yeah. time range so we're fully that we're only riding soyuz there's no space shuttle program anymore and commercial crew program is still in the developmental stages you know on a successful path but it's still not there so i go over there to do some observations part of the cio team actually supports these launches in a lot of different ways and that's out in kazakhstan or based that is in yep so we we start in moscow for a week because we're working there on a lot of prep work and then the team goes to kazakhstan and that's where i go to kazakhstan i get off the airplane and you're 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 basically in a desert and the snow is now melted so it's this dark brown soil you go through the gate. They close the gate behind us because we all get checked out. I'm, I look around at the gate and I go, there's no extraction opportunity for us. <laughs> your parents, your, well, I don't know if they trained you, but they it seeped in clearly. <laughs> it did. It did. So I do look at things sometimes going, out's going to be tough. <laughs> <laughs> Where's MacIver when I need him? <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So there wasn't even a tumbleweed, right? You, you couldn't even just hover behind a tumbleweed. And, and I'm not even sure where we'd go. Besides that sort of alertness to safety and security factors that is at least a little bit James Bondy, can you trace other ways in which your parents' work and the household that shaped you? Or just this general, the intensity and pervasiveness of the geopolitical overlay that living in Washington has, maybe. 
Yeah. But habits of mind or worries or I, that has to scar or stain isn't the right word, but that that's got to be pretty influential. I think so. Right. And I've heard some of your podcasts and just like your other guests, there's a lot that influences a life, right? So yes, it influences life, you know, keen interest in what's going on in other places besides my lovely little United States. And I love the United States, right? A keen interest in getting into situations where I am the, I'll use the term, the immigrant, not the native, going and you've gone places, right? And you get ready to go places, but when you get there, it's a full experience. It's not the outside looking in to prepare for your effort, right? You into space, you going at the depth of the ocean, do all the preparation, and then you get there. Yep. And you can't ever have fully anticipated all of what being there is going to feel like, sound like, smell like, mean, start to mean to you right away. Yeah. I I love to go do that because it's it's a reminder of, I think, gratefulness and appreciation. It's a reminder of what people have done ahead of you. So as a female leadership, right? My mom actually successfully sued and ultimately was a class action suit against NSA for their discrimination against women. Wow. Another factor, like I'd never believed I couldn't do anything. And when you hit those barriers, you're like, why, why, why am I playing soft? I mean, this is really ridiculous, but why am I having to play softball when I played baseball at, you know, and I grew up in a neighborhood with a, it felt like a thousand kids, but it was probably like, you know, 15 or 20, you know, every house had several children in it. And so when I had to play softball, I was like, why am I playing softball? It's like hitting a roll of toilet paper. I want to hear the thwack. I want to see that thing roll. And, you know, then all of a sudden you get into society and you start to see these differences, but you've already been shaped with your biases and with your, um, some of your self-beliefs and they all, they switch and they change and all of that. But growing up in that house of, and my dad at NASA, right? Reaching, pushing, pulling, going, no boundaries. And problem solving. I mean, household like that, folks like yours, I imagine it must have been you know, instructive in a subtle way to just watch and listen to them plan a vacation or solve a household problem. Right, exactly. There, There's nothing in my house now, especially, that doesn't require brainstorming, even when you're like, okay, let's just go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. So Montgomery County and Freiburg for a little while in college, where where did you, or where was your main college and your major? And I mean, did you know at some early days, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to major in this and be that? Yes, to college. Uh, so I graduated college before my mom and right about the same time as uh, my aunt. My mom's the oldest of, of a few and my dad college. And at this point he had his PhD. So education was the thing because you know, my mom didn't, my grandfather, like everyone on the generation behind or two generations behind was, they pursued education, read and things like that, but they didn't get the but not school education. Yeah. Right. That's a really critical distinction. There are lots of ways to get educated. One of which yep. is school. Yeah. Right. You, my grandfather got a law degree and this was, and he passed the bar, but he never went to law school. So it was, it is, there's a little different era but there are ways through things go with what you can do until maybe you can do the thing you really want to do. Yep. And so, yeah, so education was a, a given there was, there was, it was school. Now I was groomed despite great reluctance to pursue engineering and was offered quite a bit in terms of an engineering schools I refused. I was not (laughs) exactly one. I was tired of being in advanced math and science classes as the only female. And and in high school, we're all dorks. But I I was like, these guys are dorks, right? And there were some behavior things, but I didn't chalk it up to gender. I was like, you're just dorky. You're just a dork, right? You're not not bothering me, but I'm tired of being away from 
my posse, my peer group, my female, you know, female surrounded by the weirdos. Exactly. Exactly. And it, I, I mean, no, it gets old. people, it just gets old. Yeah. It does. It does. It's like, why can't I sometimes talk about this or that? Why does it always have to be this? And, you know, and I excelled in those things. And so I actually intentionally went for business and I'm glad I did because ultimately I ended up both in business and running, engineering yeah. and in, and in a background of a, a tech in a tech business. And so, so I chose my school and I went to DePauw University in Greencastle, Indiana, and I did it for Wait, a couple what? things. I mean, that, <laughs> I, even, I even know of DePauw, but from suburban Maryland, Washington, D.C., that's like nowhere. I had criteria. Really? I did. I always was like, well, how am I going to make this decision? Right. And um, when it comes to flavors of ice cream, I'll just get them all. When it comes <laughs> to maybe how to pursue how to pursue things, I'll, I'll come up with the criteria. And, and the criteria was very simple. Again, it was back to, I grew up, I love Washington, DC, but I knew I needed to live other places to know differently about making that choice of where to live. Because your first few jobs, you can choose, or at least I assumed you could choose, which I was able to choose. So it was all good. So I wanted to go be different. I wanted to leave everything of comfort behind. I wanted a Greek system so that it would be easier to be part, become part of a network and okay. gain friends of like-minded friends and friends that were also different. Fraternal system. Not all cookie cutter. Exactly. Exactly. There was likeness and there was difference. And I wanted to go to school overseas. And that was my criteria. Anything about size or setting? I wanted small. Okay. I'll admit this. I skipped school a lot. In <laughs> I was bored and I kept straight A's. So no one asked any questions. I mean, they did look at the absence number in classes because yeah, it was on the weird. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just like, okay, you've got A's and you haven't, you have been out of most of your classes more than 10 days. Mm, yeah. tells you something about the teaching doesn't it (laughs) i I was like yeah so i i knew i needed structure because i i at least knew enough about myself Uh, when given the chance to go play you go on a bike ride go for a hike sit around and shoot the breeze with friends that's what i would choose to do over focusing on the school so I, i i needed that structure so those that was really the criteria cool yeah Indiana. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so then you go along through life and I vowed never to be a civil servant. I, I, I wanted money. I'll just admit it. I thought that's what I thought that's what you needed to pursue, you know, because I didn't know anything about my mom's job at this point. Right. What I knew is my dad was a doctor of metal. Kathy, you now instinctively know how a doctorate in metal is important. It wasn't until I got to NASA. So long time till I went. Oh, that's oh. why we needed you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You are kind of important, Dad. Who knew? <laughs> yeah. I was like, so what do you, he's like, yeah, I build, I work on satellite programs. He was at Goddard. I work on these satellite programs. I do this, do that. Oh, he's got to dart off to this, dart off to that because it had a failure and all of this. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. All right. Can I have the keys? Yeah. <laughs> got a 20? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that too. Yeah. I wasn't going to say that one, but yes, that was, yeah, two hands were out. <laughs> All right. Car keys and money, please. When did you finish university? Uh, I finished in 85. Okay. So the space shuttle's up and running and all, and you're maybe a little bit aware of that, or did that all fall away when you went out to Indiana? Aware because, you know, dad worked at NASA and while my parents were divorced, right? There's still a relationship there. So, you know, I know what's going on in, in shuttle and dad's talking about it and stuff like that, but it's, it's kind of background noise for me. I'm not, I'm, I'm like staying away from at this point, I'm consciously trying to stay away from public service. My first job, because I came out in the eighties and it was hard to find work then I sold shoes, which was actually made no money because I love shoes. I love shoes. <laughs> that doggone employee discount, man. <laughs> exactly. I did. And you know what's interesting? I say this and going back to greater diversity in the workplace, Janet Cavani, yeah. 
She loves shoes. Yeah, Janet Cavandi, for those who don't know, is a fellow astronaut of mine, of a younger vintage, shall we say, who yes. went on to run the uh, the Lewis Space Center in Cleveland and has now joined one of the startup private space companies. Yes, she's amazing. She's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, as you know, being around amazing people sort of bring you improve your game as well. She walks in and I'm like, I know that she's a former astronaut. I know this. I even saw her picture when she went to training at Star City in um, Russia. I found hers and Ellen Ochoa, former center director for Johnson Space Center, former astronaut. So it was really cool to see that. And I looked down, she's wearing some awesome shoes. And what comes out of my mouth? I'm like, Janet, those are awesome. Where'd you get them? And she's like, oh, right. She lights <laughs> Let me tell up. <laughs> exactly. And I went, great. So it was a connector, yeah. a, a love of something. Uh, and and it is a way to connect with actually now my son's a sneakerhead. So uh, it's a way to reconnect there and I can connect, you know, across and diversely when it comes to shoes with people. So you never know what's going to help you with that. So where was that out in Indiana or had you come back? No, that was back here in the Montgomery County area. And then then I got a, my mom knew a former Marine who got a job at Sally Mae was female, former female general Marine. So student loan marketing, she was a colonel. I think she retired as a colonel. So they went out to lunch. My mom got me a job, network. I was, you know, administrative position. And there, I was impatient. I remain impatient. And I needed information out of a system. And they used SAS as their language. So I went and learned. Some software acronym, right? Exactly. Yeah, and it's actually still around now. I, I don't. I think it was statistical analysis software, but I don't think they use the spelled out acronym anymore. Yeah. Because it does a lot of different things, but that's how it started. And so I got into programming for self sufficiency and impatience. And that was great. It was great fun because I, you know, run in stuff and never pretty, but just get the data, do the analysis, and then, and then really help, help. And I worked in accounting. So really kind of help look at trends and, and not just pay bills and and learn that you, from data, you can find different ways of doing business. That got me a job with Booz Allen. Big consulting firm. Yep. A friend of mine dropped my resume and they called me right away and they hired me to come in and do programming. And that was great. And I was very excited about that. Good salary bump. And, uh, and you know, when, when you're looking at small dollars, any salary bump is good. And that's when I was introduced to a mission of the United States government again. Yes. They do a lot, probably most of their work for government clients, right? Yes. Yes, they are. They are considered what's called a GovCon, a government contractor, very highly regarded. Yeah. In less respectful terms, a Beltway Bandit. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so I, uh, I, I went to them and my client was an EPA and I didn't, I ended up not doing anything with programming, but I was the interface. It was because I understood enough about the programming. I could talk to the client about what he was looking for. And then the team and I would brainstorm and there was an excellent programmer there. Like I, I would never have been able to compete, compete just the way he thinks gave him a leg up on what I could do, but teamed was great because I, we could translate and 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 really pull things together. And, and we were a great team there at the Booz Allen team. There were about four or five of us. What kind of stuff were you doing for the Environmental Protection Agency? So this is also when the government had to start justifying its budgets, like with data. How many widgets are you buying? What's the cost of the widgets? What is the benefit to the United States public? And I got connected to the Superfund program, which is the cleanup of highly contaminated properties across the United States. Um, These are stories you hear about quite a bit. Uh, There was the movie John Travolta was in Civil Action, right? Chemicals coming out of showers, dermal exposure, inhalation exposure, uh, groundwater exposure. Yep. Somebody buried tanks of stuff back when and its tanks are corroding and it's now leaching into the soil and into your water. Absolutely. Love canal. Yep. Yep. And and in fact, I ultimately moved into federally owned properties and we had unexploded ordinance we had to deal yep. with. Military bases. Yep. Yep. The military bases. And, and that, so that's when I was introduced to EPA. And that is when 
I call it the torch was lit. And I think of it as a torch for public service. Huh? I, I could not ever imagine at that moment, I was never going to work for money again. I was going to work for mission. Can you say anything more about that conversion? And you've made me a little curious whether the selling shoes and, and looking for budget data. I've talked to some folks who go back and forth between the public and the private sector. And they, they often talk about getting to the private sector and discovering that it just feels thin. You're being busy and you're getting money and sometimes sometimes substantially more money than you were getting in the other kind of work. And just thin is the word that they often use. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and I chose my words specifically about that torch. And I think these concepts are very much aligned. I, I worked for clean water, clean air, safe land, safe chemicals for the public. Right. I mean, yes, I get a paycheck and I'm glad for my paycheck. I'm not disregarding the fact that money helps life be more comfortable, but money doesn't buy you that thing that just pulls your whole heart into what you're doing. And in my public service, like you did, you, you have traveled the world in a different way than I have. You've traveled the universe. In fact, (laughs) I've, I've kept my feet on terra firma. I surf. That's the most deep I get for water, but I couldn't imagine getting up in the morning and exhausted by Fridays, right? At least later in the career and, and go, yeah, today we, we need to finish this report for Congress to justify our money that makes a difference in the lives of communities across the United States. And it's, it didn't, the community composition it wasn't that, oh, we're going to do it in this community, not that community. Yeah, it was rich folks or the white folks or the this folks or that folks. Yeah. You, you were going to that community to do that. Now, you to work in communities, you have to modify how you communicate with the communities depending upon language, socioeconomics, and where to go, right? Mm-hmm. You want to communicate with some segments of the population. You go to their churches. Absolutely. That's where you post public notices. Absolutely. Not the news. You put them in the newspaper because that's required, but you go post them in the local churches. You want folks to really hear and be talking about it. The, yeah. the church is where that happens in many communities. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so what more could there be in 40 to 60 hours a week? It just, everything just fell away. I'm like, there's nothing else. There's, there's just you children. How much can, you know, I, I then started to get the exposure to risk baselines, especially cancer risk baselines, you know, 10 to the minus something yeah, or other yeah. or cleanup standards. Cause I was always in land programs, however, because I worked in the, overseeing the cleanup of federally owned properties. Sometimes your land piece had to have a water piece. And so you, you start to learn a little bit about the, the air and, and water pieces of these large in this instance, military bases or Department of Energy places. Yeah, dirty sites. Um, and that, yeah. You, so you start to just learn about some of those things. And while I was a policy writer, I was also the person that helped justify the budgets that went to Congress. So having this policy piece, getting to know people in the field, I, I, I was like, I don't understand your job. Teach me your job, not to be you, but expose me to your job. And that's what I would use to both help right and justify the budgets, not just with the widgets, but what's the heart around it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the other part was how to write policies is to pull the right people to the table and make sure that the people you are writing the policies for get a chance to review it. Yeah. Um, So I wrote several policies. One of them was on perchlorate, which is in rocket fuel. And it's also, you know, missiles and it's in our fireworks. And we didn't have, the science wasn't there yet on standards for human exposure, animal exposures or anything like that. So we just borrowed from other places. You know, so you pull in scientists. That means you don't know how, how much could be bad, right? Right, right. So you pull in. Take from, it by the spoonful or you better not get one molecule of it. Right. And so you design a team to write a policy and you let others comment on it especially the holders of the largest consumers of the perchlorate was the United States Department of Defense. And we gave it to them to review. 
because they were the ones that had to make the framework happen and we needed them to have it happen, right? So you can't be fighting at every site. You need to fight over the pieces of paper so that when you get out to the facility or site, the teams can collaborate and figure out the best way work done. Yeah. 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 So how long were you with EPA or Booz Allen? Did you stay on the Booz Allen side of the fence or did you hop over and become a civil servant? I hopped over and became a civil servant. So I, I got out in 85. So I sold shoes for a year or so. Sally May for two years. Uh, Booz Allen for two years, roughly, you know, almost exactly in that. And then I joined EPA and 1990 as a civil servant. And then I, I went to, I was there for 25 years and went to NASA in 2015. Yeah. How did the hop to NASA happen? It's not exactly a four lane paved road. <laughs> Especially at Kathy getting there going. EPA types and NASA types. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll go back to the, I am an immigrant. What the heck are you saying to me right now? I don't get it. <laughs> I'm sure it all makes sense in English. So it was, uh, <laughs> there, there are three points to this story. One is I saw how we were treating this planet and I needed a way off and I needed to make sure the next planet had wine and chocolate. <laughs> all right then, I'm going with you. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first answer. And, and everybody always laughed at that. The second piece was I moved into operations kind of the last, let's see, 11, 25, about the last four or five years of my time at EPA. Although while I was at EPA, I was always using computers. I was always doing some programming. And I was always figuring out how to make have computers help us enable the mission. So there's a theme through all of this. Computers and that just now, kind of grew organically? It just grew organically because computers were entering the well, workforce. very organically at this point too. I mean, at that point, actually those calendar years, you probably, probably even still for many years, there wasn't any such thing as a computer science degree, even undergraduate. There was, but it was all programming. The punch cards, never drop your box of punch cards. And then for many, many, many years, some schools had computer science, but they were like, you just said, it was kind of teaching you how to punch cards and so they were not accredited. They were not really recognized as even as valid. They weren't as valid as a trade school certificate because they everybody taught them in such different ways. And some really were no better than teaching you how to type on a keyboard. Right. OK, so you basically had to climb that learning curve yourself. Exactly. And, and anybody would anyway. And I'm, I'm a big believer for college in many things, but I also, because we have such huge shortages in cybersecurity and, and data science, I believe there's, a, there's other ways to bring awesome people into those fields and other fields too, but those are just the two I end up kind of playing with now at the, the latter part of my career. But I got in, because I was always dabbling with computers, trying to enable what it is that I wanted to do. I moved into operations at EPA. I was a deputy CIO. Computer operations, IT operations? IT operations. At this point now, EPA has created a IT organization, Office of Environmental Information. And it's got lots of cats and dogs from all over the agency because everybody was doing systems work all over the agency because yeah. guess what? We're moving data. Well, and everyone's learning how to do it by themselves because nothing's gotten organized yet. Right, right. So I moved in, I shipped into that. I Not the CIO position because it was a political appointee job. At, at no time while I was at EPA and, and actually even at NASA, did I want to head towards a political career? You had one as well, right? Have, I said, nope, I'm, I'm really just going to, at this point, I'm like so close. I'm just going to retire from the federal government. So, which I'm glad I made that decision. So I became the deputy CIO and and I loved it. I I didn't understand half the stuff that was going on, right? That wasn't my job. My job was to ask questions and my job was to have people work together as a team and to serve the customers. And at this point also, enterprise management of IT is hard. Actually, it's just hard anyway, but the tools are changing. You know, you're going from desktop provided software that you know, I had, you had, now I've got my, my son is here and my nieces are here in my son's lifetime. He's had software only done on your computer, but his working career has always been 
software out there. In the cloud somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you're having to do computer based, you know, individual computer work. So it is, it's, it's really hard and it's always hard, but it's got these different complications associated. Maybe it's just always just different complications. That would have been the era. Tell me if I have this wrong, that because the, the software was resident on each machine. And so if you had, if you personally had three computers, one at home, one at work, one at the, your vacation home, each of them could end up with a different yeah. software on it. And if you wrote a document on one, there was no magic way it ended up on the others. It, it was a whole different mindset to think about, wait, where do I, it, where do I have that? Cause it's on this one and not that one. And it's in this version and not that version. Yeah. Now your computer is basically just another window into one, right. one in the same environment. It's kind of like, I, I can look through any telescope and I get the same view. Exactly. As an excellent analogy. And to add to that, right. So imagine running something where you have to visit 15,000 computers for yeah. the latest update. Physically handle 15,000. Yeah. 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 Right. And, you know, when a document was lost, <laughs> if that computer hadn't been backed up. Yeah. It's gone. 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 Yeah. Yeah. We don't have that now. In fact, you can switch between your mobile phone and your computer. In fact, you can sit down at your friend's computer. Exactly. And look at your environment. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's what we dealt with. But I loved that stuff. I loved being called dumb, ugly, and stupid on a regular basis. I mean, you you run IT. If you're in operations. Oh, yeah. You're going to get insults. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I have been yelled at. And at NASA too. <laughs> but you know, Renee, you flew by one point there that I, I want to come back to and ask you to reflect on a bit. And you said you, you became deputy CIO and quickly said that you kind of had essentially no clue really what was going on, but that wasn't your job, that your job was to ask questions. Do you think not understanding that, do you think that's something that hangs many women up on stepping up? for jobs or promotions that they build a mindset of why, gosh, I don't know everything all about that. So I, I couldn't be scary. I might, I might fail. Oh gosh. Kathy. I'm expected to know it all. Yes. And, and I'm going to say yes. And, and I'm going to add some other pieces to it. And the first is the difference between a way a female looks at a job application. And actually I shot myself in the foot again, even after I retired on something on a job application, even though I had your style of a major agency and you put a right, and I still did boom. Right. End up in a great spot, you know, but it really was a reflection point. But the first one is, as we look at a job application and most women see it as a checklist, Or the position description. Have I done this? Have I done that? Yep. Yep. I've got the ice cream, right? I look at the list. I have, you know, I have, you know, programmed this. I have, you know, uh, I know these software packages. I know this. And you look at it and you get to, well, five, six, seven software packages. I don't know two of them. I can't apply. Can't apply. Yeah. And, And if I applied... Then I'm going to walk into that job going, why'd they pick me? And why do I have this job? And comfortably call this the imposter syndrome. But I will say women aren't the only people that have it. No, that's certainly true. It's an individual trait. I talk to a lot of women about it because I'm like, stop with your language. I mean, just stop with your language because your self-talk is part of your problem. When you're first thing out of your mouth, you've sat around the big tables at NASA. I've sat around the big tables at NASA. I was a little tiny thing. So I was always next to Ralph Rowe, who's head of engineering. The man is easily a foot taller than I am. <laughs> so I literally and, disappeared next. And to just him. a tad bulkier, though. He wouldn't like you saying that. <laughs> exactly. But I am so glad I had Ralph next to me because I was just... Things were going over my head. We were talking about James Webb Space Telescope, beautifully launched December 25th. They're talking about infrared stuff and these mirrors and this stuff. And I'm like, well, what's the worst thing that could go wrong, Ralph, right? Hand him the note. 
right? You, you know, I would just hand him my notes and not asking questions out loud because I didn't know enough to have the context to do it. But I was asking him questions. I just wasn't voicing them outside because I was intimidated by the surroundings. Mm. So, okay, let's say you're not intimidated by the surroundings, which I was, but I just went and sought the answers, right? I just went for one-on-one. You just found another channel and got the answer. Exactly. So that finally I could finally step up and, and, and then I was like, okay, now I get this, not like get it to run it, but get it so that I could now participate. First thing I was like is, so tell me about your cybersecurity plan. (laughs) (laughs) Dead silence. Excellent. My team can help you. Right. I was just like, I don't want to embarrass you. I don't want to go there, but we got to start talking about it. So I found my voice because I, I, sought out trying to get the context by which these big missions were running. Cause I only participated in the big missions just because the smaller missions were just handled by the centers. And so questions and that the other thing that we do, you may not have Kathy is, well, I'm not an expert. Yep. You just gave everybody permission to discount whatever you're about to say. Bingo. And any phrase that is in that box, cause there's a ton of them. And when I hear them, if I'm say it's helping somebody prepare for an interview, I'm like, stop. Action words. You did this. I get that you did it with the team. We all get that part. And we all did it with teams, by the way. Exactly. And now let's sharpen your message. And, you know, I will still stop people, say, teachable moment here. When you just <laughs> said this, you denigrated what you were about to tell me. I believe. And here's the phrase you used. Well, I'm, I'm just a art person. No art and design is actually huge in robotics, right? You said, no, 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 no. That's the skill you bring to the table. That's the value you bring to the table. And then the ego part, I think women are in a different spot than a lot of men that I saw is if you're sitting at that table, you just, you earned, not deserved. You belong in. It's not an act of charity. Yep. You are at the table, be at the table, learn, find your voice, get people to help you with your voice. There's a couple of strategies with that. And then deliver on your value proposition and do and be prepared. Sure, they're going to tell you wrong, right? NASA, they, 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 that you hear that a lot at NASA, right? That's just wrong. And you're like, okay, tell me more about it. It's not a personal attack. You're, the next thing should just be a question. If, especially if you're feeling hurt or irritated because maybe you aren't wrong, but somebody's just called you wrong and you're like, hey, tell me more about that. And then just circle with these questions. Yep. Turn the arrow around. Bingo. And we, I think this is something that's got to be, it's taught, right? Yeah. I was taught to keep quiet and, you know, as much as my parents pushed me out of that. Don't disturb people here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but when I'm in school, right? you know, you're taught differently. The other piece I picked up as I was going through that same process of, you know, finding your voice and finding your command presence is, you know, if you're getting into the Navy and having responsibilities as executive officer and commanding officer really helped me figure this out. If you're at that big table, you're actually at that big table because there's something you can bring that is needed. And you're at the big table, usually as the representative of uh, some group of people that's got that expertise that's needed. So you have to be there for them. You've got to, you have to own that role. You have to make sure not that people adore and respect you, but, you know, respect the authority of the commanding officer. You might think I'm the dweebiest person to ever have it. You might think women should never have this role. You may have a lot of different opinions. You do not get to disrespect the stripes on this shoulder and the position of commanding officer of this unit. Because, you know, my guys need a voice. They need an advocate. They need their work protected and advanced and falls to me to do that. So that mindset of realizing that's why it was important for me to step up and own these roles was right. It, it made a lot of difference to me. I think if it had just been an ego thing, I would have been a much harder road, a harder path for me anyway. I think that's right. And as I was listening to you, Kathy, it made me think of something. Maybe it's better to think of it every time you're at the table, you have the 
opportunity to give the gift of your expertise. Yep. Yeah. And some may value it and some may not value it, but you know, give it as best you can straight up. Exactly. Because if you can't do it from where you are, then you need to train your brain to think of it in a way that will give you the oomph to say it. So you said you had people in your command. I had people in my, you're under your authority. Right. So you can't do it for yourself. And you and I like people, we don't do these things for ourselves. We do these things for your people. So what have you heard from your team about the issue at hand that you have to voice? Yeah. Great. What do you need to learn to do better at that table? Because always think about it's a constant improvement. For everyone at that table, some show it, some hide it, but everyone's Everyone's learning something. And like you with the James Webb guys, Mm -hmm. they hadn't thought about cybersecurity. That was Mm an absolute blank in their thinking, not a smart one to leave blank when they really needed to get their act together and work on. And that's why you were there. So we're all putting something into this jigsaw puzzle. That's how it's going to become a complete picture. That's exactly right. If you can't do it for yourself to start, then you need to do it for the benefit of the project, right? Cybersecurity can be Um, Mm life-threatening. And I just did a TEDx talk yesterday on cybersecurity in space. And and I talked about space debris. And with the growing space economy, we got to be thinking about these things now. And we've seen things happen, seen like on a network, right? You know, Russia versus Ukraine and Russia now going after anybody that helps. It's a real thing. And guess what? Those are space assets too. Now I'm not in classified environments anymore, but I am sure there are stories because I used to see the stories in classified environments. So I'm not thinking it just went away because I'm not there. (laughs) (laughs) I promise it didn't. (laughs) Yeah. So there's the project's success or kill it because maybe it won't be a success and let's quit spending money on it. There's your people. And, um, and it's, you know, for the overall mission or the overall bottom line for the company. So if you can't do it for yourself and I get that, you can do it for these other things. These are, these are higher purposes and worthy callings. Yeah. We're um, right around at time. And this has just been great. I think there's so much wisdom in what you've just said about finding your voice and owning that role with all of the roads you've been on and places you've worked, any other nuggets of wisdom that you pass along to the 20 somethings in your world? Or as you think back to that, the young Renee Wynn selling shoes, even the things you wish that she had learned sooner besides whom an old planet is. <laughs> <laughs> I would. And, and I appreciate the opportunity to add some of this. One is we were just talking about mindset is, is a, a lot of the issue. And, and I, I want to emphasize this is to say to people, how does a female who couldn't play sports because the national education act wasn't changed until 1972. And I was well and alive in 1972. I loved sports. I had a, have a, a knack for probably more industrial engineering, right? I think in process flows. But guess what? I got a Bachelor of Arts in Economics degree, and I left my my career in the United States government as the NASA Chief Information Officer, where I ran global and off-the-globe infrastructure and services. We served the astronauts on International Space Station in the CIO's office. Yeah. How do you do it? One, you're not alone. You will do it with your network. You absolutely must be curious, be good to your people. And I know Charlie's been on this one and he said this a lot and that's be good to your people and they take care of your work and take time to self-reflect. We are imperfect and that makes us beautiful. And when we make mistakes, what do you need to learn? And that's what I would leave it with because you can do so much. Look at what you've done, Kathy. I, I mean, You can design a life for yourself. 
mindset, curious, ask for help, try and always be a good person to people and self-reflect. Yeah. That is really brilliant. And I mean, it's kind of, and I think this is what, what I think of as I look at and listen to the story that you've told, you've focused on designing you and that let you explore and build a life because it's, you know, I don't think it is preordained in any way. And it's certainly, you know, we can have a plan. Everyone's got plans at different stages with certain time horizons to them. And, and, you know, sometimes life lets you check off one or two steps on your plan before something goes sideways and and other times it goes <laughs> sideways right at the beginning. Right. <laughs> well, here we are. Hi, sideways. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's terribly familiar. <laughs> exactly. And I think maybe that the thing I missed and you just hit is resilience. Yeah. Life is hard. You're going to have challenges. You're going to have deep grief. You're absolutely going to have deep grief. You're going to have deep sadness. There's times it's going to suck, period, full stop. Yep. Yep. Well, Renee, we have more adventures ahead of us uh, on a yes, couple of do. projects that we're working on. I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm so grateful for this conversation and getting some of your backstory for me to know, but also because of all the wonderful nuggets of fun and humor and insight that it offers to a lot of other people. I think you've just mentored several hundred more people, at least all in the space of an easy conversation. (laughs) Kathy, it was an absolute honor. And I am so glad that we had in our, in our post major careers have had a chance to both meet and get to know each other. It is an honor to mine and I'll just wish you a great bon voyage. Uh, Thank you much. Yes. That's Renee hinting at the fact that I'm heading off on vacation tomorrow to the wonderful country of France. So thanks so much, Renee. Have a great day. All right. Safe travels. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.